This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and the rest of the world. As ever, we have got a lot to cram in in our time together. After a couple of assembly notices, I'll reflect on a sequence that I experienced earlier this week. I don't like this stuff usually, you know, kind of personal observations which you extract into a sort of global trend. But I'm going to do a bit of that in the context of the uh, Jubilee. Then we've got some great questions from you as well. Uh, Do subscribe if you don't, then you get the podcast automatically. If you could leave a review, but only if it's a great one, that helps others join our commune. Those of you on the Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics, you will be getting the next bonus podcast this week when we hit June. And it's going to be a break from the general election sequence. We're looking at the relationship between prime ministers and their chosen senior advisors in number 10, or the senior advisor, their closest confidant. And because it's behind closed doors, harder to read than the others, because this figure is the Prime Minister's choice. The Cabinet, though theoretically the Prime Minister's choice, well, that is chosen with all kinds of constraints. The person a Prime Minister chooses to work closely with them in number 10 is a unique relationship and shines much light on the character of a Prime Minister. And the first one, which will be with you on Patreon, is the relationship between Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings. Believe it or not, still underexplored in some respects because politics moves so quickly. And we're going to, in future episodes, explore the relationship between Marcia Williams, Lady Falconer, and Harold Wilson, David Cameron and Steve Hilton, and Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell. But we begin with uh, one which, believe it or not, uh, has not been analysed anywhere near enough, the extraordinary period in which Dominic Cummings was in number 10, chosen by Boris Johnson. King's Place is coming up very close now, Wednesday, June the 8th. Uh, Tickets available on the King's Place website. And yeah, I kind of have got a shape. It could well change depending on fast-moving events. But I think we will uh, analyse Operation Save Big Dog and how it is going and what that tells us about the modern Conservative Party. Rishi Sunak and the cost of living crisis and the ideological tides. Is there a sea change going on, which is almost the reverse of the 70s? We'll look at um, whether the opposition is getting its act together or not. And those by-elections, yeah, we'll be there till midnight. No, we won't. There'll be time for a drink afterwards, I'm sure. Anyway, the tickets are available on the King's Place uh, website for that. So off we go with my uh, 
personal recollection from which I'm going to extract much. It's about a walk I did with uh, my wife uh, at the weekend. And we did this walk from Dover to Deal in Kent. It was quite an interesting sequence, really. We had to get the train from St Pancras down to Dover. And when we were at St Pancras International, as it's now grandly called, it was the day of the Champions League final in Paris. And there was chaos. The queues were going way outside the station. And I'm told one of the reasons for the nightmare in Paris and the inept policing and the chaos at the stadium was partly because a load of Liverpool fans arrived late, unsurprisingly, because of all these checks now. They're the Brexit checks at uh, St Pancras International, which slows everything down if there is a huge demand for trains. It was also half term. And it was, it was like being at a football match, looking at these queues. With great relief, we stepped onto our train to Dover. En route, we saw the queues of lorries. They must have been 14 miles back before we arrived at uh, uh, Dover. They seem to be stationary. Brexit checks. It should be a new story on an almost daily basis. The paralysis of trade from Dover to our uh, nearest theoretical trading area. So anyway, that's, it's well known, but it's not on the news. The BBC never covers it and so on. I think the BBC almost has a you know, all the people have decided we must move on and so on. Then we went on this great walk. And at Deal, as we walked towards the station to head back to London, 12 miles, by the way, you know, not bad, not bad. We passed the kind of two pubs nearest the station. We had a bit of time before the train, so we went into one of them. And you couldn't move for Union Jacks everywhere. It made Keir Starmer's party election broadcast look um, restrained in its use of a Union Jack. There were thousands of these things, and some of the customers already looking forward to I saw this in St Pancras as well, where the ticket people were wore Union Jack hats and Jubilee hats. And, and in this pub, some of them also waiting to get the train. They had their Union Jack hats on. Oh, yeah, yeah great country. Ooh, oh, yeah, celebrate. Uh, uh, can't wait. Her Majesty, all this, you know, photos of the Queen everywhere. So then we... Um, managed to make our way through the Union Jacks to Deal Station to get the 420 uh, back to London via Ashford International. When we got there, joined incidentally by some of these uh, Union Jack hat-wearing people. Actually, I should have got them Lord Frosty Frost Union Jack socks when I think about it. Anyway, we got there. The 420 was cancelled. And then everyone started looking. There were no no staff to explain what the hell to do. Um, so, oh, yeah, well, we'd better wait for the 520, maybe go back and sing the national anthem a few more times. And go, 520, cancelled. 620, cancelled. Uh, they thought, well, we'd better get to um, another part of Kent and then get the train. Oh, yeah, there's a train going to Ramsgate. Cancelled. By now, there were loads and loads of people at this uh, station, including a group from... Uh, Japan. And no one knew what to do. There was no one at the station. So in the end, one of these people called the uh, intercom. Uh, it was one of the people with the Union Jack hats, the intercom where you get a reply. Uh, so this intercom rang and then a reply came from Delhi. 
And um, this bloke said, what's happening here, mate? You know, we, we can't get any trains. They're all cancelled. said, you can apply for a discount. I don't want a discount. I want, I want information, mate. Where are you? And obviously it's all been outsourced to Delhi and this poor sod from Delhi was trying to work out what was happening in Deal in Kent with the trains. Couldn't really help. There was talk of bus replacement service, what Matthew Paris once described as his least favourite three words in the English language. But that wasn't clear either. In the end, we all got on a bus to Dover because this poor sod from Delhi, after much searching and much unfair harassment from the people on the station, found out that there were trains that were going to run from Dover and all the people got on in Japan. This nice English bloke said to me, I've lived in Japan. They must look at this in disbelief. It could not happen in Japan, any of it. Trains being cancelled without any notice at all or any explanation, no staff on the station. They must be completely bewildered about this. Meanwhile, Union Jacks everywhere, wherever you, by the bus stop opposite the pub, you could still see the Union Jacks flying. And then we got this bus to Dover. All the trains were cancelled again until one finally arrived after another couple of hours. And um, in the end, everyone got back Missed the Champions League final, everything. Somehow that juxtaposition between the um, celebratory patriotism or jingoism and the reality of um, Britain's fractured public services, understaffed, creaking signals, signal failure apparently, which caused the uh, chaos, no clear lines of responsibility. So it was signalling. So that's network uh, rail. But the trains weren't running. You know, there were staff shortages with the trains. Well, that's the rail company. So who is accountable for what? No clear answers. Under-resourced, huge fares. I heard the Japanese say, you know, this would be half the price in Japan, this relatively short train journey. Astronomical prices, uh, chronic service. And yet there they were, including some of those. So that one of the people in the pub say, oh, yeah, Royal Britannia and all this sort of thing. When, the, you know, when there was chaos, oh, this bloody country, bloody country, you, you know, what are they doing with these bloody trains? And it is such a weird mix in this country, certainly England. Um, some of you will be hearing this during the bank holiday, some of you uh, before. But isn't it... <sighs> Uh, I think, a collective act of irrationality, this uh, sort of vacuous celebration of an individual who may be great. None of us know really what she's like. So all these people, apparently there are going to be 12 million at street parties, according to the overexcited Daily Mail. What are they celebrating precisely? They don't know the Queen. They, uh, a couple of them might have met, met her for 10 seconds. I've met her for 10 seconds at... Uh, um, hilarious gathering, actually, when um, New Labour were in power and there was a sort of a bit of talk of republicanism in the air for various reasons. So Alistair Campbell invited all the columnists to a drink stew at Windsor Castle with the Queen and the whole lot of them. It was interesting on many levels, uh, one of which was that Michael Gove and I were uh, ended up having a talk with the Duke of Edinburgh. And his uh, he, he, he sort of was going on about 
immigration and Britain being swamped and things, you know, using that kind of language that Thatcher had used in relation to something David Blunkett had said that morning. And it was quite interesting. Michael Gove and I were going to do it as a story, him for The Times, me for The Independent, uh, jointly. But it was quite clear the whole thing was off the record and we were right not to. But he, I think he was he was certainly up for doing it at the beginning until we decided not to on the grounds that it was off the record. Yeah, so I've met her. She was perfectly nice and all the rest of it. But so are a lot of people, you know, and I can understand and think it is wholly rational when you have a kind of uh, some friends of mine are going to Dublin for Bloomsday, you know, to celebrate the day that uh, Ulysses was set by James Joyce. They are. You're celebrating a work and a talent and, uh, you know, it is it is focused on something completely meaningful and tangible. I would, you know, if there was a Paul McCartney day, he would pop up and say, yeah, should we, we're going to rock all day today. Yeah, yeah, because we, I'll do a few songs, you know, you can join in and, uh, yeah, we'll have a party, yeah. Again, celebrating a kind of British thing or, I don't know, there are loads of things, but... But this is so empty and yet done with such passion. I'm more worked up about it now having, you know, this is the great thing about this podcast and our community. You learn a lot. And I don't know if uh, some of you will have listened to the podcast a few weeks ago when, you know, I was kind of saying why in England is there such a level of acceptance of what's going on? You know, it was when all that nonsense about Rwanda was being announced and the parties and the all oh, loads of things going on. And, you know, uh, polls come out and Tories just two points behind. And anyway, a lot of listeners who live here now, uh, but who were, uh, who were from other countries, cited the monarchy and the class system as two of the factors as to why, you know, all kinds of things can be done by this government or other conservative governments over the last 12 years. And England voters in particular just sort of take it and kind of quite like it, you know. And I looked into it a bit more. And, of course, one of the issues, I think, is that um, in quite a few countries, people are citizens, US, France, and so on. In the UK, people are subjects. And I think that does have an impact. And here is this unelected family who uh, flourish through the hereditary principle. And the subjects are told to revere and celebrate and admire uh, this family and the Queen in particular. And and they do so. And it has an impact on the rest of their mindset, I think, of just being passive, of uh, wanting to go and wave and cheer when she's nearby or uh, whatever. And it is all weird and in many ways disturbing because passion will be spent this week focusing on this. A passion won't be spent reflecting much on what this government is doing, the queues in Kent, uh, the queues at St Pancras International for the Eurostar and so on. And there is a refusal for people in this country to make connections between policy and outcome. And yet the fascination and excitement about someone they don't know who is there because she was born into it is intense. And it's kind of crazy. It really is. 
Anyway, I hope you're having a great time with you know, your Jubilee street parties and flying the flag and feeling proud. Just don't get a train to your street party. I hope your street party's in your street or whatever. It's really weird, actually. The, the other Jubilee I can remember, uh, there was one quite recently, they seemed to come up all the time, which I know the BBC got wrong. It was a freezing cold day, even though it was June. And I don't know, I think the Duke and the Queen were on a boat along the Thames and the BBC got the tone wrong and stuff. But I always remember there was a Jubilee, I think it was 1976 or 1977. I was only a young kid. And again, it struck me as weird. Like now, inflation was raging. Britain was on the edge of an economic cliff. The weather was bloody awful um, for it at the beginning of June, freezing cold. And everyone, oh, so proud to be British, you know. There's a sort of oddity to it all. It's like, you know, these people go on holiday in France and say, oh, yeah, no, it's great. We're staying somewhere so easy to to park in the kind of village square and all the rest of it. And then they come back here and think, bloody Europeans, yeah, bloody telling us a lot what to do. We, we can rule ourselves, thank you very much. It's all so confused and odd and somehow mingled into this uh, jubilee week. Uh, questions about the state of England. There's a lot else going on. We had the fascinating statement from Rishi Sunak last week, which was in many ways a left of centre statement about the role government can play in protecting people from the consequences of inflation, at least for the short term. So we've had two Sunaks. The real Sunak of the spring statement Fiscal conservative, self-declared, photo of Nigel Lawson in his uh, office, great fan of George Osborne. And George Osborne praised that spring statement, which, of course, proved to be a misjudged disaster, really, for Sunak personally, but also did nothing for the UK. That's why he had to come back again. And that's the kind of thing Dennis Healy had to do in the 70s. He used to have mini budgets all the time. Uh, They were really emergency budgets, as this one was uh, with Sunak. And then we have the second Sunak, which wasn't him, but it is uh, the Sunak propelled by the ideological tides. It's a really interesting question. One of the things I'll be discussing at King's Place, is there a sea change going on that those who are instinctively inclined to oppose just cannot do anything but swim along? In 1979, during the 79 election, Jim Callaghan turned to his advisor, Bernard Donoghue, and said, sometimes there is a sea change and there's nothing anyone can do about it. And he meant that sea change towards uh, Thatcherism. And I think he was wrong, actually, but it's, it's, it's very interesting. Is there an equivalent sea change now? And meanwhile, the whole Partygate thing is so interesting because... What happened between the angry, quite passionate Sue Gray of the interim report, which surprised everyone by its strength, albeit in general terms, and the rather tamer, resigned tone of the final report, where she just casually said, I didn't bother investigating the Downing Street parties, you know, the ABBA stuff and um, all the rest of it. This Privileges Committee investigation still has light to shine on all of this. Um, And the idea that Johnson's out of the woods has become a kind of cliche. He's not, nor is it a remarkable uh, triumph that he survived. Prime ministers survive. Only one has fallen. 
through an internal challenge, and that was Margaret Thatcher, and she'd been in power for 11 years. So, you know, Laura Koonsberg going on in her panorama about what a remarkable figure he is, that he just has this knack of surviving. They all do. But context was not one of her great uh, strengths. Anyway, uh, those are a few. I can't, you know, there's, I could go on, but we've got to, we've got to celebrate and raise a toast um, to the Queen and so on. So I'm going to now return, not return because I haven't done any yet. I'm going to start your brilliant questions. And if you want to join in the conversation, it's steverick14 at iCloud.com. So you don't need to write it if you're running at the moment. Uh, it, you just go back to about 2140, 2150. It's steverick14 at iCloud.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And so the first question is from uh, Noah Keat. And he says, hope you're well. I'm hugely excited for the live show on June the 8th. I'll see you there, Noah. Uh, especially the handover of the Union Jack socks. Good timing, given the Jubilee Bank holiday. Yeah, I hadn't, hadn't made the connection, but it makes me even prouder. Those of you coming along or who get a ticket for King's Place on Monday, June the 8th, there will be, direct from this podcast, the official handover of my Lord Frosty Frost Union Jack socks from a listener who detected a passion within me for Frosty and his socks. So yeah, that will be happening. Uh, will there be a chance to say hello afterwards at the bar? Yeah, I'll be in the bar now. I always go to the bar afterwards and the conversation carries on. Anyway, Noah said, I recently wrote an email saying I thought the local elections were being given too much weight when regarding the Prime Minister's future. Could the same be said of the Wakefield and Tiverton and Hoverton by-elections? By-elections, Tiverton and Honiton being, of course, one seat. By-elections are always different beasts to general elections, given all the political attention is on those seats. Turnout is lower, and they're often used as a protest tool against the general government. I think that um, by-elections, on the whole, do not trigger uh, great sequences. Every now and again, they play their part in seismic change. I've mentioned before the Eastbourne by-election in the early autumn of 1990, huge Tory majority, the by-election taking place in the tragic context of uh, Ian Gow being blown up by the IRA. He was the local Tory MP and a close ally of Thatcher's. In spite of all of that, the Liberals gained the seat. And it was a, it was unquestionably a factor in the fall of Thatcher. Now, if the Tories lose Wakefield and Tiverton by big, big margins, it will put more pressure on Boris Johnson. But if it's not huge, he can legitimately say, and by the way, the Tory majority in Tiverton is huge. So even if they lose by a bit, MPs will worry, but he can still then 
pop up and say, oh, mid-term government, we'll win them both back at the general election. We're the one full of ideas, full of ideas. They're not actually full of ideas. It was fascinating. The Monday after the week of the Gray Report and the Sunak Statement, Number 10 had briefed newspapers about all kinds of policy initiatives to convey the sense that it was time to move on, to use the cliché of the moment. And they were they were all Brexit-related. They'd all been announced at least three times before, like the bonfire of the EU regulation. Get rid of them, get rid of them. That was in the Queen's speech and briefed in advance. It was briefed in January they were going to do this. Um, the UK government initiated a lot of those EU regulations because it was in the interests of the British economy to do so. Oh, anyway, there was oh, there was another one briefed, another front page of a friendly newspaper that um, the, the the freedom to take back control means that we can invite in now, you know, elite talent from other countries, professors, scientists, and so on. We were doing that anyway, and that's not where the labour shortages are at the moment, as I discovered on my walking day. You know, when I missed the Champions League final because of the chaos. They're in travel, uh, transport, leisure, restaurants, hotels. If they're not calamitous, he can, Johnson, legitimately say, this is what happens to governments in midterm. The Neil Kinnock era as Labour leader, Labour often made huge gains in Tory by-election seats uh, and lost them again at general elections. But some do matter. You only kind of know afterwards how significant they are. Anyway, that's another thing to mark in June, those two by-elections. I'm now over to Denise Willier. She is joining in for new listeners, in which case you, you, it's compulsory. You're just going to have to listen back. We've been having a big debate about the future of the NHS and co-payments and whether they're a good thing or a bad thing um, as a way of raising money for this beleaguered side. You know, in my day trip to deal, didn't get, even have to deal with the NHS. You know, it was just the chaos of transport that I experienced with the flag waving. Anyway, Denise uh, says... I wanted to contribute to our discussion about the NHS, having worked as a CEO in the health and social care sector. One of the key issues, as I see it, is that the NHS is geared up to treat acute conditions and emergencies, but not set up to address the lifestyle challenges of the modern world. Yeah, absolutely. It's not as good as is necessary when it comes to dealing with chronic conditions that aren't life-threatening, but make people's lives miserable. Medicine needs to evolve to become relevant for the, this era of chronic lifestyle-driven problems. But this is nowhere near on the political agenda. The obvious place for this to be addressed is through the GP system. But this is impossible given that the number of GPs is falling every year, and don't we all know that, because GPs are leaving the profession rather than entering it. This is compounded by the shortage of nurses. Back to that question, Denise, of labour shortages being the big crisis question in the UK, um, as well as inflation. And the combination of the two is really potent. Denise says this clearly puts pressure on an overworked system. And it's no surprise it's close to breaking point. Clearly, we can't wait the 10 to 15 years it'll take to build staffing levels to where they need to be. That's the problem. If there's a staff crisis, it takes years to build up. My view is that we need to make public health a driving mission of the Department of Health and Social Care, which, as far as I can tell, it isn't. Yeah, I, I absolutely put it at the centre. 
It'll come as no surprise to listeners of the podcast that government funding for public health has been substantially cut since 2015-16 and in 21-22 was 24% lower per head in real terms. Yeah, and they will have consequences. Denise, thank you very much for refocusing our discussion on the future of NHS and care. Scott Croswell, Steve, what are your views on the recent BBC cuts and how BBC4 Extra and BBC4 are to move online from linear television? Although I myself am a fervent believer in public broadcasting, doesn't this surely damage the BBC's reputation? I kind of follow the BBC quite closely. I think it's very poorly led at the moment on several fronts. At the very top, in news, um, where some shallow decisions are being taken, uh, just naive and not thought through and with no sense of a distinctive mission for the BBC. Now, it's absolutely clear that uh, spending is being squeezed. Uh, but I kind of still speak to people at the BBC who say there are plenty of areas where things could be cut without affecting output, but they tend to always go for the output. Yeah, I know a lot of people who enjoy BBC Four, uh, but even that kind of flavour and uh, potency that BBC Four had some time ago has been diluted recently. So, yeah, you're, you've got good cause to be worried, uh, Scott, about what's happening both within the BBC and the external pressures, which the BBC is poorly equipped to respond to for lots of reasons at the moment. Uh, Joel Rawlings, do you think this is down to, oh, yeah, I think Joel is talking about uh, the, uh, the power of the papers, Daily Mail, the Moot Murdoch papers, uh, backing Boris Johnson, and that others are relatively indifferent to what he's up to unless there's an actual direct effect to their daily lives, which is why the cost of living may be the thing that uh, affects this government more than any other. He says, I've been reading, I'm not going to pronounce this right, Joel, Mo Mose Naim's Excellent Revenge of Power. Sounds good. I haven't come across it. And the tricks that the Tories have used seem to be straight out of the playbooks of Berlusconi, Chavez and others, from creating a leader with a fan base to media control. It goes back again, Joel, to this thing, as you were saying, with the cost of living. Maybe these voters who are going to spend most of their energy this week raising a toast to this elderly woman who they've never met, that the cost of living is one example where people do make connections. Actually, in some respects, unfairly, some of the inflation is not down to the government. The Brexit bit is down to this British government. Obviously, Ukraine and the pandemic is having its impact as well. But I wish there was a capacity to make more connections just by becoming interested in politics. They, politics is inherently interesting. You can make it interesting to anyone. I know you could, can. And there is a resistance, especially in England, to it. But there are ways of, of doing it. And I suppose the challenge for opposition politicians at any given time is to try and make those connections with voters who don't normally follow any of it. Say, this isn't the week to try. They'll be uh, flying the flag. Cathy Mears says, um, if Tory MPs bottle their responsibility, is there anything that can be done to extract us from the sewer of corruption into which Boris Johnson is dragging us? I'm obviously talking about the debollocking of the ministerial code. I'm beyond anger. I'll have to run very fast to dissipate. Uh, Cathy does the park runs. And uh, I bet she did the fastest time ever, uh, uh, having <laughs> written this uh, email. It was what chutzpah, really. 
to water down the ministerial code after the Grey report is published. It shows um, he's a curious mix, Boris Johnson, of uh, a sense of uh, total invincibility with um, a kind of paranoid insecurity. It's a very curious combination. But it was the invincibility bit that drove him to water down the ministerial code after the week he had experienced. Thank you very much. Over to Nigel Levy. Uh, You're my weekly go-to to make sense of it all. That's what we all do, Nigel. We're all making sense of it all here, trying to. Um, I couldn't do it without all of you, for sure. And, oh, yeah, he listens while pedaling away on my daily Watt bike session. Is that like a peloton, Nigel, where you kind of just sit there sweating away, listening to all of us lot, making sense of it all. Um, Anyway, welcome to trying to make sense of it all. Oh, he says, I can oversee the Peloton for Rock and Rollers Cooperative. Yeah, that's, uh, we we could do with a bit of that, getting fit. Not all of us are, well, I'm running slowly. Some might prefer that. So keep in touch on that one, Nigel. Nigel says, uh, Boris Johnson has proven to be a serious liar throughout his private and professional life. Yeah, there is a pattern. His explanations and apologies, which he gave to the Commons over Sugre, must be placed in that context. That word again, context, our favourite word on this podcast. Um, I wish Laura Koonsberg would be a context person. And therefore, he cannot be allowed any benefit of the doubt that he didn't mislead or lie to Parliament. By continuing to maintain him in office, his MPs need to realise that their government has lost its integrity and therefore has forfeited our trust in anything they do or say right up to the next general election, when we will then speak truth to power. In the meantime, however, do you think it would serve the opposition parties well to combine in having a symbolic action day to boycott Prime Minister's questions, just to demonstrate to the country graphically that his own prime concern is to speak to and satisfy his own backbenchers? Uh, Well, you know, there are sometimes devices which have symbolic power. I was thinking about that one. It would certainly grab attention. But I think he would say, uh, Boris Johnson, look, they, I'm so dominant and uh, so they're, they're scared to turn up anymore. So it could be turned against them. You've got to be very careful what you choose. Remember, you've got the Daily Mail, the Sun, sometimes the Times against you. So you've got to be very careful in what symbolic moves you make that they're not turned against you. And now over to France and Dominique Jewell. It would appear that Sue Gray has found that there were parties in Downing Street during the lockdown, that those parties were illegal, and that those who organised and attended were aware they were breaking the law. Yet nobody has been reprimanded and nobody has resigned, except Dominica Allegra Stratton. Do you remember? She, she went having given one of her dress rehearsal press conferences. You could say, therefore, that there are no consequences, our other favourite word on this podcast, for new listeners consequences for Johnson or any of his staff or colleagues. So what consequences do you foresee in the medium to long term future for the Conservative Party? Uh, Dominique says, cracking observations and analysis en, en grande merci. Well, merci, Dominique, for your many perspectives from France. It's hard to work out at the moment what the consequences will be because this saga hasn't reached its end. Um, there will be consequences that always are. 
the Conservative Party has an easier time of it because of the uh, broadly supportive media. But when you do something like the parties, there will be consequences. We can see it now in the opinion polls where, um, although Labour should be much further ahead, um, if it could uh, more uh, convincingly get its act together, the um, parties have had an impact and on the way he is perceived. I think it has been the severing of a trust with a certain part of the electorate who hadn't baked in that he's a rogue and are rather taken aback that this figure who delivered Brexit for them as they choose to see it. They don't choose to see what's in front of their eyes. They choose to see what they are told to see or what they choose to see. But on the parties, it is such a breakdown of trust And again, I I find it fascinating to analyse what's going on in the minds of Conservative MPs. Like I mentioned earlier, the Monday newspapers full of rehashed policy announcements to give the impression of moving on, uh, that phrase. It's deeply insulting. Do these Tory MPs and party members look at the front page of a telegraph with a rehashed announcement, which anyway probably won't be implemented as billed, and think, oh, yeah, yeah, we move on. This is amazing. This is, or do they recognise it is a rather kind of desperate? In the New Labour era, there would have been endless stories about spin, and an endless focus on the equivalent of Alistair Campbell panoramas, Today programme at ten past eight. It was always about spin. Uh, they had themselves fallen for the idea that spin was the dominant theme of the New Labour era when it wasn't. It was a theme, but not a particularly significant one. But anyway, the spin of all this stuff, do Tory MPs fall for it? And if they don't, what are they going to do? Now, I acknowledge it's tough um, to topple a prime minister. It's a huge, huge call to make. And the consequences are uncertain. But I think that um, there will be a lasting damage uh, to the parliamentary party if they are seen to sit there accepting it or more than accepting it, kind of being fully supportive of the uh, prime ministerial line. But we will see. It's going to be a dramatic few months and uh, quite a summer. Remember, prime ministers nearly always survive. That's not a prediction. It's just assessment of the past, really. Anyway, well, look, um, it's half term week and you've got to, what are you all cooking for the Jubilee to raise your toasts? We've got some brilliant cooks in this rock and roll politics cooperative and some, I hope some great bread is being baked and all the rest of it. And I know some of you will disagree with me when I say this kind of the worship and the homage is kind of irrational. I don't buy the thing that it's in a divided country. This is the one thing that unifies it. Well, the unity should be over a greater sense of purpose. And um, I don't know, there needs to be a more radical cutting edge. But this is not the only Britain. I always remember uh, Tony Benn when he was giving his speeches in um, the kind of height of his power. In, uh, for example, in the early 80s, he was an amazing orator, whatever you think of him. Labour are kind of 20 points behind in the polls. Michael Foote was leader. Thatcher had won the Falklands. And Tony Benn, who used to like to encourage his audience, he would say, 
the reason why Michael Foote will win the next election is very clear. When you look at your history, it's the radicals in the end who triumph. If you look at Jesus Christ, the levellers, the chartists, uh, we are radical. By the way, as we all know, Michael Foote was slaughtered in 1983. But he used to chart the sort of radical tradition of uh, the UK, which dances with this kind of delight at being subjects. And um, Anyway, I've gone on long enough, I think. Look, yeah, hopefully see you on June the 18th. We'll get together to make sense of it all in the podcast as well. Uh, tickets available on the King's Place website. It's being streamed live as well if you can't get down to London. Patreon Rock and Rollers, a new bonus podcast, this fascinating illuminating relationship between Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings. Please leave a review, even if you disagree with me about the Jubilee celebrations. And I'll see you all next week. Have a great time. Enjoy what I think will be quite sunny weather for our celebrations. Take care. Bye. 